Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. On the day after the inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris, we held a virtual forum to discuss progressive priorities for the first 100 days of the new administration. This conversation also took place in the wake of the events of January 6th, beginning that morning with the news that the Georgia Senate elections would change the balance of power in the Congress. With the election of John Ossoff, the first Jewish senator in that state's history, and Raphael Warnock, the very first Black Democratic senator in all of the South. That fateful day ended, of course, with the violent storming of the Capitol in an attempted coup. This gave our speakers, Dorian Warren and Judith Brown Deanis, a lot to sort through. They were joined in conversation by our own Deepak Bhargava, distinguished lecturer at the School of Labor and Urban Studies. He starts us off. We are joined by some brilliant guests who are gonna illuminate the path forward for our movements. We have Dorian Warren, who is president of Community Change, one of the country's premier social justice organizations that supports grassroots organizing in low-income communities of color all across the country. He's a leading expert on issues of labor, worker rights, racial justice, economic security, and he's also hosts a podcast that I look to for insight when I'm confused about what's happening in our country called System Check with Melissa Harris-Perry that I encourage you to check out. We're also joined by Judith Brown Dianis, who is executive director of the Advancement Project, which is a fantastic civil rights organization that combines litigation, community organizing, and communication strategy to win real concrete gains for people of color in this country and is really pioneering what civil rights looks like in the 21st century. She's a expert on voting rights, criminal justice, policing, and we're really lucky to have her with us today. So brother and sister, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. So if, if all that had happened in January was yesterday, it would have been an intense month, but it wasn't. And so we had the extraordinary elections in Georgia, first African-American Senator, first Jewish Senator, <laughs> unexpected, powerful. And before I could even have a celebratory drink, there was the insurrection at the Capitol by a mob of white supremacists. I know that community change action played a big role in all of that. And I'm, my, my first reaction to the first pairing of those events was WTF. So I'm hoping using both your organizer hat, but also your political scientist hat, mm. Professor Warren, you can kind of explain to us how to make meaning 
of what yeah. is unfolding in this country. You know, it's interesting. I just have to reflect the new year. Literally, January 1st seems like two years ago. Yesterday, to me, was actually the new year. Yesterday just felt like, okay, we actually are in the new year. But to go to back to January 6th, contradictory traditions in American politics and history that came to a head on the exact same day. So on the one hand, this long tradition, right, from the 1619 project, of course, of domination and white oligarchic rule based on racial capitalism, based on white supremacy, based on white minority rule over the majority, right, whether in elections or in the workplace. And political violence has always been central to our systems of domination, to our systems of exclusion and exploitation and dominance. There's political violence. There's also laws and rules. That's a long tradi tradition in, in our politics from the founding. And yet there's this other tradition of resistance and transformation, of strategic nonviolent disruption and protest, of strategic use of elections as a tactic, not a strategy, of narrative change, of organizing. And so January 6th is where these two traditions meet, right? So you walk, we woke up to the improbable news, unless you're an organizer, to the improbable news that Georgia, Georgia, one of the cradles of the old Confederacy, one of the major cotton producing slave states. It has Stone Mountain, which is like the Mount Rushmore of the Confederacy. It was the site of the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915. You have the carvings of Confederate leaders, Robert E. Lee, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, literally in that mountain. And yet with that core history of that state, you have a 33 year old Jewish man. And of course the senior pastor of Dr. King's and his father's historic church, Ebenezer, both winning Senate seats, giving Democrats the majority in the Senate and a narrow trifecta. So it's improbable until it's not because that took a decade of grassroots organizing and the building of infrastructure to create that political earthquake. Okay, and then a few hours later, <laughs> we witnessed a traitorous, seditious white supremacist insurrection on the United States Capitol, the very symbol of our democracy of we the people and it's not lost on me that we saw a Confederate flag make its way in the Capitol building, which never happened during the Civil War. The Capitol building that was of course built by enslaved black people and yes, their children and black enslaved children helped to build that very Capitol. So you take all that in. And so in hindsight, <laughs> the events of January 6th were surprising and not surprising in the long sweep of mm -hmm. American history. It's the, to quote a book, the unsteady march in a sense, two steps forward, one step back. So whether it's the end of reconstruction in the 1870s and 1880s that we know gave rise to Jim Crow authoritarian governments in the South, driven by many violent political coup d'etats. Uh, I think of the Colfax massacre in Louisiana in 1873, that was an effort that resulted in black death by white militias to contest for political power. I think of the Wilmington riot of 1898 in North Carolina, a successful violent white supremacist coup. So we've had, and those led to white supremacist racially authoritarian governments in the South for hundred years. What did we expect after Obama? <laughs> right, in terms of white backlash right. and attempts at Jim Crow 2.0 under Trump. So I'll just wrap here, sorry for going on, but like our forebears, it's on us then to continue the epic struggle between these two contradictory traditions in American history. And there's other traditions, of course, too. One around racial hierarchy, a white Christian republic versus a transformative racial justice movement. I think it's really important to have that <laughs> historical grounding to make sense of anything 
that's happening in this country right now. And just to pick up on that point about the Confederate flag flying in the U.S. Capitol, I don't think, you know, I don't want this to fade from people's memory about what just unfolded here. So Judith, for you, my question is, I mean, it seems like what Trump is really saying and what they're saying when they say stop the steal is that <laughs> black votes are illegitimate. The voters yeah, right. of color are illegitimate. They're not full citizens in this democracy. So it seems clear that a big axis of struggle has to be for the franchise, for the mm -hmm. full and equal access to the franchise. So what is the voting rights agenda for the first 100 days for this administration that you're pushing, that we should all be pushing? Um, so yeah, so we know that this, <laughs> this fight for the right to vote has been it's a historic fight, right? And that when this country was founded, there was a compromise, right? Around the fact that states should have the right to decide who gets to vote and who doesn't get to vote, right? And that's because Confederates wanted to make sure that the majority, which were black people, did not get to vote. And so I think right now, what we need to be doing is number one, the, the big thing is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And that is a bill that has been, was introduced over a year ago, actually probably two years ago now, because John Lewis was alive and it wasn't called, it wasn't named after him at the time, right? And so it is a bill that passed the House but couldn't make it to the floor in the Senate because Mitch McConnell wouldn't let it get to the floor. And what it would do is that it fixes some of the um, problems that we have seen since a Supreme Court case, Shelby County versus Holder, in which they kind of took a, a knife to the heart of the Voting Rights Act, which is Section 5, which would have required any changes in voting have to go before the Department of Justice for certain states that have a history of discrimination before they can be implemented. And so without that tool, what we've seen is this mass disenfranchisement through state legislative actions, this whole issue around how to vote during a pandemic. Would any of those changes would have had to go to the Department of Justice to get sign-offs? And so we really, we need to have that act passed. That is number one. There is also HR1, which is an omnibus bill of like everything that you could want in order to make democracy work. So the Voting Rights Advancement Act is more about discrimination in voting. So we have to have those protections. And HR1 would give us everything from uh, issues around how our campaigns are financed in this country, but also issues around voting and how we vote, right? Because we should have things like automatic voter registration. Why do we have restrictions on how we how we register to vote? That's because they don't want all of us to register. So those are those are two bills that I would say we need immediately passed. I don't I will tell you that I don't think that HR1 is probably going to make it through. I do think the Voting Rights Advancement Act can make it through. I think there's enough support for it and I think coming off this election it should be a number one priority. Makes total sense, makes sense on moral grounds, strategic grounds, political grounds, on every kind of grounds you can think of. And can Deepak, I yeah. just wanna add also on this issue, one thing that I should underscore is that we're also going into a redistricting period. Yeah. And because we are in the past, what we were able to do is when one of those plans, a redistricting plan for a Congress or state legislature would in those states that was covered by section five would have to go again to the Department of Justice 
for pre what we call pre-clearance. We don't have that tool. And so as we move into this period where by the end of 2021, about 20 states will have done their redistricting plans, we need to have a double check because the thing about voting rights is that if these when these states pass laws and they implement it, it's too late to get your right to vote back, right? Like you can't get it back. So, so that's why we need to have these checks in place in advance. Thank you for that. And Dorian, so you mentioned the public health crisis, which has obviously been the cause of a massive economic calamity in this country. So can you speak to community changes priorities for this new administration? I know you've been working on them a lot over these last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then how you assess and understand the Biden economic plan, the components mm -hmm. of which were recently released and also what, what you foresee coming. So how do you make sense of the response on the economic crisis? I think first and foremost, I mean, I think there, there are three big buckets for us in terms of our work um, with many others, I should say. So one is around a just recovery, obviously COVID, 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 getting our hands and arms around the most devastating pandemic in a hundred years in this country and around the world, 400,000 Americans are dead and it's hard for the brain to process that number, but we have to have to first really focus on getting, defeating the virus, right? And that includes equitable, particularly racially equitable distribution of vaccinations. Second, I would say under this bucket of a just recovery, racial justice, racial justice, racial justice, everything has to have a lens of racial equity that this next administration does. Um, I would add gender equity there too, which we've seen some moves towards, and I think Judy could probably speak more to that. Obviously, economic justice, so what is the immediate relief in terms of cash, in terms of transforming the unemployment insurance system, worker power, housing justice, like all the things, and then democracy reform. So I would put all of that under just recovery. Community change in particular is really focused on a new vision around immigration reform and transformation of our immigration system. So that includes all in undoing all the bad things the Trump administration did, led by the white nationalist Stephen Miller, all the bad things he enacted that harmed and hurt and killed people. So reversals of executive orders like the Muslim ban and protection for dreamers, moratorium on de deportations, but also transformative legislation that creates a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented. And then the third category here I would add would be childcare and broader investments and our care infrastructure. So that's childcare and early learning, which we care a lot about, I personally care a lot about, but also long-term care for elders, paid family leave. And that is really important for both rescue and recovery, which is how the Biden administration is framing their broad economic policies, because we need, and particularly for childcare, federal support for childcare providers, for childcare workers, accessibility for parents struggling to afford childcare. Childcare is the gateway to economic recovery. People can't get back to work if you're caring full time for a child or an elderly person or someone with a disability. So care has to be front and center and it is the future of our economy. So now is the time to invest with a down payment on bigger structural transformative changes, hopefully quickly. And then just to wrap up here, like Judy said, an eye towards 2022. So this is a period of redistricting, but what are, what are we doing at a movement level in terms of state and local politics and building power? And there's, there's one thing as a political scientist I always think about in my head, and that is policy is simply power relations frozen at a moment in time. It's sort of the settlement between different interests and particularly the powerless versus the powerful. So what is our role in building power to win transformative policies in this period?
Well, I think that's a really important frame for how we approach this moment of governing. It's not a matter of what are they going to do. It's a matter of what we are going to do. And speaking of that, you know, we have seen the largest, most diverse social movement in the country's history take to the streets over the course of a year, not a day, not a week, not a month, but it's still going. And so, Judith, I want to ask you to speak to what's the response to that call that's been made about police, policing in America, about mass incarceration. How does the Biden administration really make a difference that people can feel in their lives about those issues? And just to be really raw about it, what what should Black voters expect having delivered the White House to this administration? Very clearly, very obviously, what is the, what's the ROI here on policing mm-hmm. and incarceration and beyond? Hmm. So big questions, and it's and a, and a difficult one because anybody who knows the history of uh, now President Biden knows that he was the person who was the he designed, implemented architect of um, the crime bill of 1994. Has had a love affair with law enforcement for a very long time including putting police in schools. (laughs) Um, He was the one who made that happen and made sure that the money was there. And so, but I also think he knows that it's a different time. And we now have evidence that what was done was so harmful to our communities. And so I think that there's, there are a lot of things that they can do. And I want to say this, that they're not going to do what we don't push them to do. And they may not do all the things that we want them to do. And so this is why movement is always important. Like just because Biden is there, Harris is there, doesn't mean that we should stop organizing, protesting, and voting, right? Like those things have to continue to happen. And so I'll just name a few things. So one is one of the things that they should be doing that, um, that I think is both immigration, but also law enforcement and includes black immigrants is canceling 287G agreements, like contracts. No reason to have them. And this is the, you know, for those who don't know, it is the contracts that that basically deputizes local law enforcement to be ICE. <laughs> They're the ICE extended family. And so that is something that they can do. Things like ending civil asset forfeiture, federal. Now remember we have, you know, they have the federal arm of criminal justice. They don't do the state, but they also have the the strings, the purse strings, right? And so the purse strings are important. The purse strings and the budget are very important. And so, so those things, when we talk about all of the energy that was in the streets, what we are talking about is people who are a, a kind of a whole spectrum of people who want divestment to people who want abolition, right? And there are some who say, I'm not going to have that fight right now about defund versus abolition because there is a spectrum. And so what it means is for this administration is, number one, he's talked about giving an additional $300 million to law enforcement. It should not do that. <laughs> that like this is exactly the wrong thing to do in this moment. Instead, what we need to be doing is looking at the budget that he puts forth. And that budget has got to put money, and it's not 
add there and add law enforcement now money that creates a caring communities right so we know that mental health is needed a mental health force that is not part of the police force no we want them separate violence prevention police don't stop violence right like we have violence protection prevention programs that are working in communities and we need federal money to go into expanding that so so how are the things that get us out of this addiction to law enforcement because we are addicted. We are addicted in narrative. We are addicted in the way that we think that they're gonna solve everything and they're not. And so that addiction can over only be overcome by cutting back, right? Like, you don't, you don't say to somebody, you have a job problem, let's give you more. No, that's not, you have to pull back. And so how do we pull back? And that's gotta be in the budget, police-free schools. This money for police and schools, SROs, as some people call them, they're just cops comes from the federal budget. Instead, we want that money to go into counselors and restorative justice programs in schools. And so there are things that they can do. I am worried that they're not, you know, the expectations are here and what they will do is here and that there are restrictions. Government can't do everything. So like I look at, you know, our friends who are going into the Department of Justice, Benita Gupta and Kristen Clark, and I know that they can't do all the things that I would want them to do. And that's, in fact, that's why I wouldn't take that job because I'm like, mm -mm, you know, but some people, we need people on the inside. And so I know that their hands are tied on some things. I know that they'll do consent decrees with police departments that in the end are not going to change policing in the big way that we want to change, right? But that that is part of the puzzle. And so I think, you know, they're listening. I also want to add to this and the federal death penalty. We had a 17 year moratorium. And then that guy comes into the White House and starts killing people. 13 people since last July have died under the federal death penalty. Let's put the moratorium back in place immediately. So I'll stop there because I, you know, I go on. And, and then I want to just add to people look at the Breathe Act, which is a piece of legislation that was designed by the Movement for Black Lives. And we participated in helping craft some of the language around that. But it has it has everything in there. And Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and others are trying to move the Breathe Act. So I, they, I would really tell people, sign up to get alerts about the Breathe Act, to understand what's in there, because it's a pretty, it's an omnibus, which isn't just about police and, and mass incarceration about, but what our communities need to get away from mass incarceration and punitive treatment. Yeah, I really appreciate those deep answers. And I was struck in doing a little bit of research on just the vast disparity that has only continued to grow under both Democratic and Republican administrations when it comes to what laws we choose to enforce. It is remarkable on policing and immigration, the contrast to civil rights, fair housing, equal pay, wage theft, worker rights, the disparity is appalling and a democratic administration should be held to account for what laws it takes seriously that are supposed to be in the public interest. So Deepak, can I just add, yeah, I think yeah. the other the other piece of this is that there will be US attorneys that are going to be appointed, right? And so we need to make sure that the people who are going into these positions are reform minded, mm. right? That they aren't the old like law and order crack down on things kind of mindset, but they are 
reform, like reform prosecutors that we're electing across the country, because that's the other thing is read the tea leaves. The tea leaves are that the people on the ground are building power around changing the local systems. And so how do the feds honor that too? How does this administration say, you know what? Looks like people want reform-minded prosecutors, then we should we should start appointing some of them. And Dorian, take on kind of personnel, big picture. How do you see how do you see it? There is the old um, <laughs> saying, personnel is policy. That's true. Just look at Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller yeah. in the previous regime. So it actually matters. I am pleasantly surprised with many, and there's too many to name check, many folks I know that share our values, have deep expertise, are competent. <laughs> you can't take that for granted. That, are, that, are, that have accepted the call for public service. And they have a job to do. You know, there is a little bit of, among progressives on the left, we're like, there's a little bit of how we're, we're kind of afraid of governing power <laughs> and don't have a theory of the case of what it means to govern. Not everybody, but I'm just saying. So there's, like, there's all, all, often a little hesitation. Nonetheless, our job on the outside is to keep pushing, to keep the pressure on, to be disruptive when necessary, to give them the space to go as far and be as transformative as possible. That is the, like, you know, I don't want to get into a, oh, these, these 10 are great and these 10 are not so great. Like it's, I'm actually impressed with some of some friends of ours collectively that are, that have accepted the call to public service, but our job on the outside is to create the conditions for them to, to push as far as possible. So to that point, I think where I want to go next is to ask you a kind of hard question about how the Democrats govern in the situation we find ourselves in, how you think they should govern. So Trump accountability for all the crimes, there's delivering on the promises like those $2,000 checks so people feel like they got what they voted for. There's huge imbalances in power in our society, voting rights, workers versus corporations, all the you know, kind of the structural power issues in society, democracy, how, how does, how do you think about prioritization? Like what's the theory of the case about how to govern in this time that we find ourselves in? And Judith, maybe you first. You know, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about this because I, you know, I just think you, you do what's most radical. <laughs> so, so I'm like down with the squad, right? Like let's like, and let's grow the squad because those, those sisters, and I know now they've got Jamal, too. But, you know, it's really, you know, that is the way I, you know, I, um, but I want to be like a realist about this, right, is that you have a Senate that still is, it's 50-50 plus the MVP. And so that means that there's going to be, and we already know the Senate tends to be more conservative and moderate anyway, even on the Democratic side. And so, so I think they are, there's going to be a lot of compromises that are going to be made that are political compromises. But I also think, and, and right, like, so from my perspective, it's like, you better listen to the movement and like, who put you in office? But you know what? There are a lot of people that still voted for that other guy, right? And so like, that, like America is like, kind of split almost down the damn middle. And so I think that what that means, not the way it should, but what it means is that there's going to be a lot of middle of the road work that people in Congress are going to move 
and that's because they know four years is not a long time. Some of them will be on a two-year clock, right? Because they'll be up for election. And so I am I am worried about that, but I also think that's why movement has to be continuing to push, continuing to call for the radical things. You know, we're gonna have new voices like a Cori Bush out of St. Louis, who is just incredible, right? And so you have to have the left flank. The left flank brings the right, even not, I don't mean the right, right, but like the left right <laughs> out towards the left. And so I think that that's gonna be quite important. But I also think that getting to Dorian's point around the things that people need to survive, right? Like we have like this one level, which is survival at this point. And I think the more that they can make the case that we are helping people get on their feet, that they will get some people who were unexpected allies and for and people who actually are like, thank you for that check. Thank you for the healthcare. Thank you. For so, cause we're at such rock bottom right now that survival is important and it's a winner and it's gonna bring people along for them. Mm, thank you for that. That's deliver and push from the outside as being critical ingredients to a governing paradigm. Thank you, sister, thank for, you. Your, for your thank vision you. and your imagination and your work. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. So there are a couple of questions for, for you, Dorian, that speak to the question of power, mm -hmm. the labor agenda, how to prioritize among all the meritorious issues from a lens of building people power. But yeah, what's your theory of the case? How should the Democrats be governed govern and prioritize? Yeah, and you had named, you know, accountability for Trump, focus on delivery of concrete benefits, fixing democracy, addressing power imbalances. Professor Bargava, the correct answer is D, all of the above. It, it has to be a yes and moment, not an either or moment. And I really want to make this point. We have to learn the lesson of reconstruction in terms of the accountability for crimes against American democracy and the American people. And we only have to look at our own history to see the results of what happens when you appease traitors. If the Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest had been held accountable for his treasonous role commanding cavalry for the Confederacy, he would have never become the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. And so the most consequential act of President Ulysses S. Grant, and I'm going to come back to him later, was sending federal troops to the South to put down sedition. And so it'll be President Biden's most consequential and necessary act to follow in Grant's footsteps and to really hold every participant in a seditious white supremacist movement responsible for January 6th in particular. But you can't, you can't address all the things, the climate crisis, racial justice, the economy, you can't do that without the rule of law, period. And whether it's immigration or voting rights, all the things that we want. So I would say um, accountability and then yes, delivering immediate concrete benefits for people that also build power, worker power, community power, civic power for a lasting and enduring progressive majority. It includes all the things we've talked about. And the last thing I'll say, the way I think about this, I did an interview a few weeks ago, the head of a food bank in North Carolina. And he said this thing to, to both Melissa Harris Perry and myself. He said, you know, you have to feed the line because there is incredible crisis of food insecurity right now. You have to feed the line, you have to shorten the line. And then I would add, you have to abolish the line. So you have to like, people are hungry. People are suffering. You have to feed the line. You have to shorten the line, but the goal should be abolishing the line. And we have to move on all three of those fronts simultaneously. Thank you, Brother Warren, for those very powerful words. And I think we should all come back to 
the perspective you gave us on how this moment falls into a lineage, a history of struggle and contestation about who we are as a civilization and our part in that. So I really wanna thank you and invite folks who are listening today to connect with Community Change and also to, to listen to the fantastic podcast that Dorian does with Melissa Harris Perry called System Check. So thank you, my brother. Really thank you, Professor Bargava. I really, really appreciate your service and legacy to the movement and now as a teacher and as a, a scholar. So thank you for your service. Thank you, Dorian. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, go to newlaborforum.cuny.edu.